Okay. Let's do this, guys. We're on page 13a. In the version you're using in English, it's 13a3. The last thing that we talked about was Esther. <laughs> That's what we talked about. And we talked about um, kind of the miraculous nature of Esther, her personality, how things worked out. We talked about the two names, Esther's two names. So she was Esther and had a nickname or nom de guerre Hadassah or maybe the other way around. Hadassah and then they called her Esther. And we talked about the possible symbolism. And then we had the teaching of Ben Azai. And I'm not sure, I don't remember if we finished off with the teaching of Reb Shua ben Karcha. So just in case we didn't, I'll just quickly add it in. Reb Shua ben Karcha says that her name was Esther. And why was she called Hadassah? Because Irak Reikes Hoysa, because she was green like a myrtle. And despite the fact that she was green as a myrtle, which does not sound like a beautiful complexion, nonetheless, Chutzel Chesed Moshuch Aleha, there was this incredible grace or charisma about her, and because of that, everybody loved her anyway. So Rashi says, Chutzel Chesed. She was Yirak Reikes, was Kahadasa Zul, green as a Hadasa. Myrtles are a very deep hue of green. She was very green. And despite the fact that she was very green, which is usually not a sign of tremendous beauty, it's a sign of uh, bad health usually, nonetheless, she had this miraculous grace about her, charisma. Rashi says, Me'esa Kodesh Baruch was from God. In other words, like something miraculous. That's why she was everybody's hero. She looked so beautiful and everybody was like kind of head over heels with, with Esther. And I guess then the message here of Esther being green and despite the fact being green, being so popular and being the winner of the beauty contest tells us more about the miraculous nature of the story of Purim. Incidentally, the Vilna Gaon asks a very basic question. He says, in the Megillah, she's described as Vahanaira she has a beautiful form and she has a nice complexion. And then you tell me she's green? How could that be? So the Vilna Gaon suggests that Esther's harrowing induction into royalty claimed so much from her, so it took so much of her health, it took away her, her, her appetite, that she turned green. People, she turned green out of grief, turned green out of agony, out of unhappiness, and, and, and despite the fact that she turned green, so she should have gone free, nonetheless, Achashverosh thought she was a total knockout and everybody else was amazed with her. At any rate, so now we have an understanding of the story. I'm glad we talked about this because specifically we're going to talk about Esther's harrowing experience in the palace. It was not an enjoyable and happy time for her, as we will soon see. But first, we're going to raise Esther. So let's start at the beginning. With regard to Mordechai, it says that Vayihi Oymen as Hadassah. Now the word Oymen usually means one who raises, the one who trains. Uh, the word Imun means like a professional. And how do you become a professional? Practice. Practice makes perfect. So therefore to raise or to guide is like the terminology of practice. So Mordechai is Oymen as Hadassah. He Esther, Bas this is Esther, his, his uh, relative. Ki ein lo avvaim. The Gemara says... Why was Mordechai raising her? Why, would, why wouldn't her parents raise her? And the Gemara answers, 
the reason that her parents weren't raising her, and instead Mordechai was raising her, because she didn't have parents. She didn't have a father and a mother. And then the scripture continues, Uvemois aviha upon the passing of her father and mother. So that's why Mordechai, so to speak, took her in as a daughter. The Megillah says, Uvemois aviha the Megillah says, Mordechai loy levas. Mordechai took her or adopted her as a daughter. So the Gemara asks, we know that every word in the scripture is meaningful and precise. So why does it have to say, Ki ein lo Mordechai raised her because she had no parents to raise her. And then the Megillah goes on to say, then, so when her parents died, when she was an orphan, that's when Mordechai raised her. What's the obvious question? The Gemara says, what are you need those words for? If you know, if you already heard, that she doesn't have a father and a mother, so we presume if she doesn't have a father and a mother, that the father and the mother are not alive. That would be the presumption, unless we would know otherwise. But if somebody says they have no parents, they have no parents means that their parents died. So if Esther's parents died, why do you have to say, and upon the passing of her father, or since her parents were dead, that's why Mordechai raised her. So this seems to be superfluous and unnecessary. And as such, we come to the conclusion that, well, we know she's orphan. It says, she doesn't have a father and a mother. And then it says, in the, in the passing of her father and mother, why would they have to, Miguel have to say the same thing twice? So I'm going to give you a multiple choice. Number one, the Miguel made a mistake, didn't know what it was doing. <laughs> Number two, the Miguel is trying to teach us some kind of profound message. Number three, don't sweat the small stuff, it doesn't make a difference. You choose, what do you think? You're learning, what? Huh? Yeah, we're going to have to go with two. <laughs> <laughs> I understand there are those who, who would like to go with three and like, whatever, it doesn't make a difference. But, but it does make a difference. Because remember, this is, this is the Bible. This is the word of Hashem. So with the word of Hashem, nothing is just happenstance. There's nothing silly here. Everything here is meaningful. It, it's not even a question of making sense of it. It's much more than that. It's a question of what does it mean to us? What does it tell us? Everything in the Torah has to have a message for us. Everything in the Torah necessarily speaks to us. It's, it's broadcasting something. Something of importance. Something we needed to know. <laughs> How do I know? Because if we didn't need to know it, we wouldn't be told it. If we're told it, we need to know it. So either it's because it has a piece of the story that's important for us to know, or it's because there's a lesson, or maybe even both. So this is the Gemara. The Gemara says, Lamali. And the Gemara answers the following. Omar Rav Acha. Rav Acha explained, he said, the purpose of these extra, seemingly superfluous words in the Gemara, of saying, she has no father or mother, and then when her father or mother died... So that's when Mordechai stepped in. So Rabbi Acha says, Ibarta, once her pregnancy began, which means the mother of Esther became pregnant, Mes Aviha, the father died immediately. So the father was never around. From the time that Esther was already beginning her terrestrial existence, which means from the beginning of gestation, the father was gone. And then, Yoladata, then the mother gave birth and Mesa Ima. And the mother died instantaneously or right away. So the father died at the time of pregnancy 
and the mother died at the time of birth. Let's take a look at Rashi here. Rashi says, Uvemais avia veima su lamali. Says Rashi, Ma'acha dechsiv. Since it's written, Ki ein lo ava ein. She has no father or mother. If she has no father and mother, what is the purpose of telling me uvemais avia veima? Ella. So the only thing or conclusion we can come to is lulamdenu. It wants to teach us. Esther never had parents. Not that she had parents and lost her parents at an early age. Not that when she was still young and impressionable, her parents weren't there to raise her. Esther was a woman who never had parents in her life. How could you never have parents? They weren't growing babies in petri dishes those days. You have to have parents. How, could you not have, how, how else was it possible? So the answer is, there was a man who was her father, but he was gone immediately. And there was a woman in whom she was incubated and developed, and then the mother was gone immediately. Esther never had parents. She was orphaned from the moment she began her life. So the Rav Acha's answer is, B'shoshen is abro ima meisaviha. Nimza, shalohoyelo av mishoshen nida lehikores av. She couldn't have had a father from the time that the, the time he could be called a father. It's a very interesting Rashi. That seems to indicate that the moment that there is a baby in the waiting, the moment a woman is pregnant, the father is already a father. It's not a collection of cells until it's born, as some would have you think. It's a baby. It's a baby. There's a really smart lady named Peggy Noonan. She's a, very, she's a, was a, a speechwriter for Reagan. She wrote a, an incredible article in the Wall Street Journal lately. So she said, talking about these abortions, these late-term abortions, she, she said like something which anybody who knows, who's been around pregnant people knows, like when the baby kicks, like what does the mother say? Like she puts her husband's hand on the stomach so the baby's kicking now, right? Or she, or she shows her parents, or like baby's kicking, you see the baby kicking? Like they just kill it? They just stick a needle in and kill it? It was a baby, you know? Five minutes ago, it was a baby. Rashi says that the moment a pregnancy is achieved, the father already is considered a father. And the mother becomes a mother at the time of birth. Why is this? She couldn't be called a mother. So what's going on over here? Why not? Why, if you can call a father a father from the time the pregnancy is achieved, why can't you call a mother mother from the time? So the Maharal says the following. He says that uh, when a baby is inside the mother's womb, the baby is not independent of his mother. So therefore, the mother doesn't feel like there's something outside of her that she is the mother of. It's part of her. She carries this baby. This baby is in her. And because the baby is in her, the baby becomes an extension of her. Doesn't mean she could kill it. It just means that she doesn't get called mom. She doesn't get called mother until the baby is actually separated from her. But when it comes to the father, the baby is already separated from the first moment. So that's the terminology of you, can't call, you can call a father immediately, but a mother means somebody who is separate from the child. So the answer, the question is, are you a mother before you give birth? The answer is no. Is the baby a baby before you give birth? Yes, the baby is a baby. The baby. It's just a baby is part of the mother. He's an extension of the mother. The term mother, from a Torah perspective, when does that term kick in, if you will, 
when there is something to mother, something that you can consciously choose to be a mother to. Otherwise, the mother it, it is a part of her. This incidentally gives us insight into the whole notion of this debate of patrilineal descent, matrilineal descent. You know, what makes, what makes a person Jewish? If the father's Jewish, the mother's Jewish. Like the Rebbe once said, yeah, it's, it's not an illogical thing. It's not like something, well, if Torah says we have to accept it. It makes perfect sense. We are our mother. Our, 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 our connection to our father, our father initiated a process. He kick-started something. But that's about it. You are your mother. You were your mother's flesh and blood for nine months. So when the question is, a, a, a Jewish man kick-starts a pregnancy and the baby grows up in the womb of a non-Jewish woman, what is the baby? Obviously not Jewish. How could it be Jewish? Does it make any sense? What, because a Jewish man started something? Somebody flipped a switch? It's less than flipping a switch. It's, 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 it's really just starting a chemical process. A child is a piece of his mother. It doesn't mean, again, whenever we have it doesn't mean that the child is being part of his mother. The mother's not called mother. It doesn't mean the the child's not a life. It doesn't mean a person, God forbid, would be, is allowed to snuff out that life. It's funny. Imagine you would tell one of these people, these leftist uh, secular fundamentalists, that a person wouldn't violate Shabbos to save a pregnancy. Imagine how they would blow up. Imagine, which is wrong, by the way. We do violate Shabbos to save a pregnancy. Imagine what they would do. You don't violate Shabbos to save a pregnancy? What's the problem? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a life. What do you mean? Of course it's a life. Scott Peterson, remember him? The guy who killed his wife, that monster? He, he, he got two death sentences. Why? Because he killed, his, he killed his, his wife and he killed his child, which is true. He did kill his child. The same society that thinks it's normal to give a guy a death sentence for killing a child that's unborn, the same society thinks it's perfectly normal, but if the mother wants, then you can kill the child. Also, it makes no sense. Anyway, this is a little tangential. Forgive me for being, expressing my frustration at the lunacy of the world we live in today. <laughs> sugar world. But at any rate, here we talk about verbiage. Verbiage. The question is not if the baby is a baby. Of course the baby is a baby. It's not a question. The question is verbiage. The verbiage is, can we call the father father before the baby is born? And the answer is, you can call a father father before the baby is born. You cannot call a mother mother before the baby is born. So, see a pregnant woman, somebody could say, who's the father? Well, assuming that we don't know. Who's the father, we could ask. And actually, there's a discussion like this in the Gemara. What happens if we see a situation where you know, a girl got pregnant, is called ben her, her pregnant abdomen shows clearly she's pregnant. Do we trust her if she says it was this person or that person? Like, and it could make a difference in Allah. So say, who's the father? Or say, who's the mother? That would be a dumb question. Who's the mother? <laughs> She's looking at the woman as a pregnant. Well, who's the mother? Oh, the mother is my, it's my neighbor. It's the mother. But I, I'm, now I'm doing the pregnancy. That's ridiculous. Who's the mother? Obviously, the one who's carrying the baby. So the term mother can't apply until the time of birth. So therefore, what we know about Esther is that her mother had a very, very lonely pregnancy for her because her husband was gone, right away he died. And the moment she was born, Esther's mother died also. So, the father and mother died as soon as they were called father or mother, that was it. He died as soon as he became a father, meaning from the moment of pregnancy. She died as soon as she became or achieved the term mother. That's it. Mother, no more. And this is Esther's life. So Esther is really bereft alone in the world. And this baby girl who's alone in the world, who has neither, neither father nor mother, Mardechai takes her as a daughter. So, so far, it's, um, 
it's a very, shall we say, altruistic thing. It's a baby. Who's going to raise his baby? What was Mordechai's wife? I don't know. What was her name? I don't know what her name was. Maybe Mordechai have children. Did his first wife die? I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe Mordechai was all by himself. Maybe his wife had died. And nonetheless, he decided to raise his baby because it was his family and there was nobody else. There was no other family. Now, how old was Mordechai this time? I don't know. But I have to guess that he had to be like over 100 years old for sure. Why? Because he was already a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. According to some opinions, it seems the head of the Sanhedrin before the destruction of the base of Megdash. So if he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, they didn't draft bar mitzvah boys. He had to be in his 20s. Okay, Elizabeth uh, Azariah was 17. That was once in a millennia kind of thing. He had to at least be 20 years old or maybe 30. Somehow it seems Mordechai had a wife and then he lost his wife. And this is 70 years later after, after the exile. And he is already a prominent member of the Sanhedrin 14 years before the base of Megdash is destroyed. He has to be at least 100 years old or older. So as a young man in his 30s or 40s, there was a baby in the family. Nobody else could take care of this baby. Mordechai took it upon himself. All of a sudden, here was a guy, probably a widower, who was feeding bottles at night, changing diapers, raising a baby. Because who else should do it? A stranger? So Mordechai raises this baby. And now, if this is all not strange enough for you, it's going to get very strange. Tonim Yishum Rebbe Meir. We learned in the name of Rebbe Meir. And I want to begin by telling you I do not necessarily have clarity and understand, at least like it's hard for me to understand and picture and envision how this works out. We have to, we have to approach this with the, with, with the notion that we cannot superimpose our own lives or our own minutia on these colossal figures. That there was people who lived in a, with, with a higher consciousness and a higher reality. And because if, if you're going to think about this in terms of you and I, it's going to sound extremely strange. So we have this opinion that's ex- learned in the name of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is one of this great, great Tanoim who is considered to be one of the greatest converts of all time. He is a grandson of Nero, the famous Nero who supposedly fiddles while Rome burns, the Nero who disappears. This is the Nero who the Gemara tells us when he saw that God wants to destroy the base of Migdash and blame it on him, he said, I'm, I'm not doing that. And he saw miraculous things and he asked the child, give me your verse. And he told him a verse about, about uh, God getting vengeance on Rome. He said, I'm out of here. And this, our, our narrative of the story is that Nero disappeared and he became a convert, a righteous convert. And his grandson is Rabbi Meir, one of the great sages of all time. Rabbi Meir was so brilliant, so insightful, so intuitive when it came to Torah that it says that they couldn't even understand him. His own peers couldn't understand him. His, his grasp of Torah was so profound. They called him Meir, which comes to the term light. They said he was Meir Enechachamim. He illuminated everybody's eyes. So there's this, there's this Mishnaic teaching from Reb Meir who says that in this particular word in the Megillah, Mordechai took Esther as a bas. What does a bas mean? A daughter that there is an al-tikri. Al-tikri is a methodology of biblical ecstasis in which we, we, we see a verse, we see a word, and we say this word 
has more to it than the sum of its parts. This word means more than just this word. This word is, it has multiple meanings included. Like I said in the, our class earlier today, it's like a pun intended. So you use a particular word and you mean multiple things. Right? The example I gave this morning was, person says, uh, read, uh, register, in parentheses, read, pay. It's true, you have to register. But it doesn't just mean like sign, sign your name up. You say, please register is like, please pay up. It will be like a euphemism, like an expression. The point would be that we would see a word in the scripture, and this word in the scripture is taken literally. If it says it in the scripture, it means what it means. We're not, saying, we're not suggesting for a moment that the word doesn't mean what the word means. What we are saying is that it means more. It has an additional meaning. There's like that pun intended idea. There's an additional notion that's being conveyed to us because of this word that's being sent our way. Now usually the al-tikri is a methodology which is passed down from generation to generation and sometimes the al-tikri was, wasn't clear. We, we had a certain tradition and we didn't know where that tradition was conveyed to us. So the sages analyzed very, very carefully the words of, of the scripture to see where could the al-tikri have been tucked in? Where could this message, which word can be read in multiple ways? So we have this tradition that Mordechai and Esther were married. We have such a tradition. But we don't have any scriptural proof for it. It doesn't say it anywhere. It's just, it's just an oral tradition. Oral tradition that went along with the Megillah. The Megillah, Megillah is the scripture. And along with this oral tradition comes this idea that, that Mordechai was married. And Mordechai is married. And we're soon going to get to it in the Gemara. The Gemara is going to talk about it in detail. So, so why wouldn't the scripture allude to it? The scripture alludes to Mordechai adopting Esther. The scripture alludes to Mordechai taking Esther as a daughter, it does not allude, or so it seems, to Mordechai taking Esther as a wife. And so, and so Rabbi Meir said it, there, is, there is a hint here. And the hint, it's encoded, it's tucked into the folds of another word. But we use the methodology of al-tikri. Don't read it this way, read it that way. And when you read it with different vowelization, Rabbi Meir said, al-tikri, do not read it levas, don't read it as a daughter, but rather, Ella Lebayis. Read it as a house. So because it says Bas, but Bas can be read as Bayit. I'm sorry? There would be a letter missing. That's correct. That's correct. If it would have the Yud inside, you couldn't be read as a Bat. But sometimes we can vowelize. Altikri is not only a vowelization thing. Altikri needs a leap of you have to read deeply into a word. It doesn't say it in the word. It alludes to it. So Levias is, 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 is kind of that message. Why, why is that the idea of a, of a daughter? And we're soon going to see, we bring a proof from the Gemara's discussion of a very famous biblical story where a wife is referred to as the house. Which the wife is a kerasabias, the mainstay of the house. It's referred to with the terminology house. As we, will soon, as we will soon see. So I, here's a question that I want to answer now before we go further. The question I want to answer is, why do we have to say that Mordechai and Esther were married? Like what forces us to say that? It's like as if it has to be the case, we just don't have any scriptural proof. Ah, Rav Meir figured it out. He cracked the biblical code. He used the Altikri methodology 
to figure out which word could be saying wife, and he found Lakachlevas, and Lakachlevas would be this idea of a wife. So the Alkabats in his Sefer Monas Alevi, he suggests the following. If you take a look at the Medrash, the Medrash and the Targum of the Megillah says that when Esther was taken to the house of Achashverosh, she was how old? 75 years old. Sounds pretty old, huh? 75 years old. Now the Gemara actually brings down three different opinions. The Gemara says one opinion was, and this is the opinion of, of Rav. Rav said she was 40. Shmuel said she was 80. And the Rabbanan said that she was 75. Reb Rachia, in the name of the Rabbanan, say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Avram, you left your house at age 75. By your very life, I swear to you, I will bring a redeemer to your people who will also have to leave home at 75. Incidentally, the name Hadassah, if you add up the Gematria, you get 75. 75 years old. So, first of all, maybe people live much longer and maybe people look much better. I, I don't know. It's, maybe this whole thing is just one big miracle. But the bottom line is, she's 75 years old. Okay, so she's 75 years old. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that from a Jewish perspective, that wouldn't be right. Why didn't Mordechai find her a wife? Oh, husband. Why wasn't she married? If she was a kid, so whatever. Achashver snatched a kid. She's 75 years old. She should have been married like uh, 60 years earlier, 50 years earlier. Why wasn't she married? It's an inconceivable Mordechai, who's the leader of the Jewish people, should have a young lady under his responsibility and he doesn't get her a husband. It's inconceivable. It doesn't make any sense. Especially she's beautiful and she has a lineage. <laughs> what was the problem? So because of that, it must be that she was married. But we don't know who she was married to. He wasn't, he wasn't a bit of a prophet. He was much of a prophet. Yeah, but the prophet doesn't mean he knows the whole future. The prophet doesn't walk around with open, wide open eyes knowing everything. When God wants to communicate something to him, so then there's a prophecy given. When it came, the decree of Haman, which was written in code, like the Nazis used to send out, they never put in paper gas chambers. The terminology on all their paperwork was Sunderbehandlung, special handling. So this is what Haman did. This is a very old trick. Haman sent out letters to everybody. He didn't write. He wrote, be ready for a day. To another, he said, be ready and muster. Muster the troops. To others, he said, we're going to get rid of the final solution coming. Special handling for the Jews, a final solution. How did Mordechai know them? Haman was so careful to make sure nobody would find out about his decree because Haman knew that Mordechai is a parliamentarian and you know the Jews run everything. The Jews run the media. The Jews run the government. The Jews run the banks. He says, if the Jews ever find that the Jews are going to be eliminated, then they'll, they'll do something to defend themselves. So Haman didn't want to take any chances. Haman did this in a big, big secret. And how did Mordechai know? So if you take a look at Rashi, on the, on the Megillah, he says Mordechai knew either through a dream, it was con conveyed to him through a dream, this, this, this nocturnal vision, or a prophecy. So Mordechai was a prophet, but a prophet doesn't mean he knows exactly what's going to happen. If prophets knew exactly what was going to happen, they would have no freedom of choice. How could he be a tzaddik? <laughs> He's Mordechai a tzaddik. What's a tzaddik? He knows what's going to happen, so of course he does the right thing. The prophet has the Yitzhahara at least sometime in his life, just like everybody else. He overcomes the Yitzhahara. He yearns for prophecy. When God gives him prophecy, he knows. What does he know? Whatever he was told. And nothing more, necessarily. So, so therefore, it, 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 must, it must be that's the case, that, that, uh, that she was married. Now, the Chidah, 
In his Sefer Pesach Enayim, says something very interesting. He says that the, the key for Rabbi Meir here was the fact that it says, livas. What should it have said? Livas means to a daughter. What should it have said? It should have said, kivas, like a daughter. Because there's a halacha that says that kol anybody who raises an orphan in his or her house, the Torah considers it as if that person actually is the biological parent, as if they actually gave birth. So here was a girl, a baby girl, who never knew her father, because her father died the moment she got pregnant, never knew her mother, because her mother died the moment she gave birth to her. So certainly, by any stretch of anybody's imagination, an orphan girl, alone in the world, who raised her, who took care of her? Mordechai, from day one. She never knew her parents. He was the closest relative. He had no choice. So if Mordechai raised her, she shouldn't have been like a daughter. He, sh- he should have been here. He adopted her as a daughter. So why does the Megillah use that funny language? Took her to a daughter. Should have said he took her. He raised her as his daughter. So the fact that the Megillah uses this unusual expression... This in and of itself is a dead giveaway. Something is off. Now in general, in general, you have to note that our tradition, our oral tradition was that Haman, pardon me, that Mordechai and Esther were married. That's our tradition. And that's one of the meanings when, when Esther says to Mordechai, Mordechai says, go to Achashverosh, Esther says at this point, now, now I can never go back, now it's over. Because up until this point, Esther was under duress. Under duress, she was never unfaithful per se. She had no choice. Here, she went to Achashverosh by her own volition. So from this point in onward, she would no longer be allowed to resume living with Mordechai. It was at that moment when she went to, to, to Achashverosh that Esther knew life would never ever return to what it was before. Everybody was happy. Everybody got saved. Poor Esther lived the rest of her life with this buffoon. It was, it was over. When you talk about to a daughter, you're actually talking to a daughter. When you're talking as a daughter, it doesn't have to be. That could have been his wife. The, the translation of to and as is, is far from exact, but you have to like, in Hebrew, you have to understand that libas and kibas, the right language would have been kibas. Especially because that's, it's a Torah lesson that when somebody gets adopted, that the Torah regards that as the parent. That's a Torah lesson. That's a, that's a Torah idea. Whether the world chooses or doesn't choose to accept that idea, that's a Torah concept. So the Torah concept is absolute. And the Torah would seemingly use every opportunity to convey this message. So if the, if the Megillah, which is Torah, which is Scripture, specifically doesn't use the language which would lend itself to express a Torah idea, yeah, so what's going on here? Something doesn't match. Something doesn't seem to right. I mean, like, there's something else that's being conveyed to us. It's like when a person uh, knows his business you know you, you see something wrong you know that this is a sign of something much bigger come to a building you see a little crack somewhere a guy says oh there's a problem with the foundation how do you know i know something's not right here so there's something not right the mayor noticed something not right the laman instead of the chaf which is incidentally one hebrew letter off right chaf lamet but the, something's missing the right thing would be kivas it says livas so from this he understood that there has to be some kind of deeper message that's going on over here now, interestingly enough, 
the, our sages, also rabbis, point out that later on, when the famous question is asked, he said, how could it be that Esther was married? It says, Ahasuerus said, get me all the betulot. Betulot, a young, unmarried woman. Technically, woman who did not have any kind of intimate experience. That's a besula. So, how could that be? So the Ibn Ezra, because of this, says that Mordechai never married her. Mordechai intended to marry her, but never actually married her. So Ibn Ezra's approaches Esther Mar- Haman, pardon me. Mordechai and Esther were never husband and wife. They were intended to be husband and wife. It's very hard to understand. That. Why, why, why would Mordechai do anything? And maybe what you said, Mordechai, is maybe there was some kind of prophecy. Maybe Mordechai knew it wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe, I, I, I don't know. But that's what the Ibn Ezra approaches. The vast majority of Rishonim do not follow the Ibn Ezra's approach, and they say, no, 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 this is, they were married. So they say, it's true, Achashverosh, he sent for the un, 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 unmarried maidens, like what we would call today in English the virgins. But that's not what the people took. Achashverosh said one thing, and they said, oh, don't, we'll fix you up, Achashverosh. We're going to get you so much excitement. You, you, won't even, you won't even know what hit you. And they did whatever they wanted. So, and then it's, it's interesting because if you look at the exact verbiage, it never says, it says that he wanted besulos, he wanted these young maidens, but it doesn't say, it says that Esther was nara, young, like a young maiden, toivas mare. But by Rivka imenu, which is an earlier scriptural precedence for almost the same verbiage, it says by Rivka vahanara, toivas mare, besulo. So that means that Esther was no longer a virgin. It doesn't say the word there. So therefore it makes perfect sense to say that ultimately Esther was in fact married. And who was she married to? To Mordechai. And this is the Al-Tikri. So, so really your mayor's Al-Tikri is Al-Tikri Labas Ela Labayas. And we're soon going to see how bias is a terminology which is used for, 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 for a spouse, for a wife. So why is this so, so strange? Because, I mean, for people like us to hear that a man adopted a baby and then married her is off the charts. It does not, it does not fit into our understanding of reality. It, does not, it just doesn't add up. It can't seem right. And, and, you know, for us it wouldn't be right. But Mordechai was a person who acted everything totally with Hashem Shemayim. He was a holy tzaddik, and Esther was a holy tzaddikonis. And these are people who lived and operated, really, like on a different wavelength. For, for them, they, they looked at things like this in a very, very different fashion. They lived in a different fashion. And I understand that maybe some people out there are skeptical about this. And, I, you know, if you, if you want to be skeptical, I can't help you. <laughs> the Torah does not cover up for any of its heroes or heroines. And we're soon going to see, we talk about David Amalek. Torah doesn't cover up for him. Torah doesn't say he didn't do it. He didn't do something inappropriate. Torah gives us in detail. If Mordechai did something inappropriate, you would hear about it. The difference between the Torah, the Jewish Bible, and other Bibles or canons is that in all other canons, all other Bibles, all other such scripture or apocryphas, if you want to call them, everybody there is fantastic. Everybody there is a knight in shining armor. None of them ever make a mistake. Everybody does exactly what they're supposed to do all the time. There are a bunch of angels living in the pages of a book that seems human, but nobody there is human. And a person looks in the Torah, and we have mistake after mistake, and, and shortcoming after shortcoming. From Avram to Sarah, from Yitzchak to Rivka, from Yaakov to the Shvatim. And we struggle with these things. 
And we say it's not mistakes as we think them, and it's not in a graphic or, or, or literal way. Reuven didn't actually sleep with Billa. He just messed around the, f- the furniture, and he rearranged his father's bed. But the Torah still considers it bad. You look in the other canons. There's no, there's no mistakes, period. Everybody's perfect. Now, I ask you, if I wanted to make up a canon, I wanted to tell you about a cast of superheroes, these people, the spiritual perfection, would I tell you their mistakes? Of course not. I'll tell you they're perfect. So if this was made up, the people who made it up were daft. Something was wrong with them. But if it's not made up, and we believe it isn't, it's Torah, and it's true, and it's godly. So when somebody does something wrong, you're going to hear about it. And yet the Torah doesn't frown. The scripture doesn't say, Mordechai, strange cat, adopted his baby, then married her. It doesn't say anything like that. So there was a certain point in time where Mordechai was... Was the, it just was the right thing? Was the right thing? And for Esther knew it was the right thing and did, did the right thing? There's a, it was a great chassid of the Friedrich Rebbe. His name was Khan Marazov, Khanya Marazov. He was murdered by the communists, by the way, one of the chassidim that was arrested and never seen again. And he lost a wife very, very, at a very young age, a house full of children. And he ended up marrying his wife's younger sister which is not so uncommon there's many famous people in the world that real Sharon was married to his wife's younger sister as just somebody famous in the political world the secular world it's not, it's not an unheard of thing and it, the Torah doesn't prohibit it but the story goes that she was already the, this, the younger sister who ended up becoming Khanya Marazov's second wife she was getting a little older and I, I, if I remember she was correctly she was an orphan so Khanya her older brother-in-law said to her you know, I have to get you a shidduch. What, what kind of boy are you looking for? And she said, find me somebody like you. Chanya was like an unbelievable chassid. He was like the f- previous rebbe's like, grew up, they grew up as children together. Chanya was like a, he's <laughs> the stuff that legends are made of, Chanya Marazov. She said, some, some, somebody like you. You know, maybe Esther, being raised in the house of Mordechai, Mordechai said, Rebbe, yeah, raised in the house of Rebbe, she's going to marry a regular person. At some point, like, it just, it, it didn't make sense. There was, Esther is such a tzidkanah, such a righteous person. Like, <laughs> she's a person on her wavelength. And I, I, I can't explain this exactly to you. I'll tell you exactly how it evolved. But at some point, we have to presume it was just the right thing. It just turned out that was, that, 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 that was where it had to go. And so that's where it went. And I, I fully understand that for a lot of people out there, it sounds very strange, very weird. But like I said, the Bible does not mince words when people do things inappropriate. And there's nothing like that ever mentioned about Mordechai and about Esther. Even if you follow Ibn Ezra's approach, they were going to get married. They just didn't get around to it. It doesn't make so much sense either. What was stopping them? Like, presumably at some point, Mordechai and Esther separated. They weren't living in the same house. Okay, you adopt a daughter. There's nobody else in the house. It's an issue of Yichud. Maybe Mordechai had a wife once upon a time, and then his wife died later. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows Here's what we do know. We know what, what our sages tell us. We know what the Talmud tells us. So we try to understand this to the best of our ability. Bottom line, we, we have this, we've discovered a mayor cracked the biblical code and he found the allusion in the scripture to Mordechai and Esther being husband and wife. The Gemara now says, the Gemara tells us how we know that the concept of bas and bias are actually one and the same. How do we know this? Where, 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 do we, where do we find that bias is a wife? So 
Firstly, you should, you should just know as a matter of principle, the Maharsha tells you, that there is a story in the Gemara where Rabbi Yosef used to call his wife, he didn't say Ishti, he said Besi, my house. That's how he referred to her. And he wasn't the only one who referred to his wife in this kind of terminology. Now, the methodology of Al-Tikri means that the first meaning is not discarded. Methodology of Al-Tikri means the first meaning is included. That means initially took her as a daughter, and later she became a bias. The Gemara brings now a, a proof that a bias is a methodology that, that, or, or a terminology that's used for a wife. So the Gemara now takes us off to the book of Kings. The book of Shmuel, actually. In the book of Shmuel, with regard to David Melech, there is a, a scathing story that happens. David Melech sees Bathsheba, and he falls in love with her, and he's with Bathsheba. Now, you have to understand that when soldiers would go off to battle, they would actually conditionally divorce their wives. Retroactively. They would give her a bill of divorce. It says, Kol David, get They went off to battle, they actually gave a bill of divorce. So technically, Bathsheba was already divorced, unless her husband came home, she would technically be already divorced. But the reality was that this man, Uriah, had not yet been killed. Now, Uriah himself was a murdered Mamalchus. He had rebelled against David HaMelech. And the halacha, the law is, that when somebody rebels against the king, the punishment is capital. So Uriah actually was supposed to be assassinated or executed. What happened is David HaMelech made sure that he would fall in battle. So he fell with valor. He, didn't, wasn't, he wasn't executed like a criminal. Instead, he died in battle. So technically, Bathsheba was a divorced woman. So technically, David Amel doesn't sin. But of course, okay, fine, you know, it's like getting away with murder, as they say. You get away with the letter of the law, but how, how could David do this? So the, the, there's a story that's told that the prophet, his name is Natan, or Nasan Hanavi, he comes to David Amel, and he doesn't accuse David Amel. He very brilliantly spins a yarn. He tells David Amel a story. He says to the king, what would you rule in this case? What would you say if somebody did something like this? He says, Ularosh ein kol. The expression is, the poor man had nothing else. He had nothing else, the poor man. What does this mean, the poor man had nothing else? So, so the idea here is that ki im kavso achas. All the poor man has in this story is just one little sheep. One little sheep. A kav sa'achas ketana. Asher kona, that he acquired. Ve'yichye, ve'tigadalimai. They live together. He's raising this little uh, cat, this little sheep. And then, ve'imbanav with his children, yachtov. What happens? So what happens is that this poor fellow who has, so to speak, Nothing else. He ate, she ate the little sheep, ate his bread. He shared with this little sheep his own water. The little sheep sat on his bosom. Euphemism. Or literal. The little sheep was like his daughter. 
So far, it sounds like a lot of people I know and their pet dog. <laughs> like, the pet sheep? Okay. So what happened? Well, of course, this is all a metaphor. It's all a metaphor. Uriah, what does Uriah have? A beautiful wife. That's all he had. And what happened? What happened was that there was a wealthy man, and he didn't have plenty of sheep, but he didn't want to slaughter his own sheep. So he decided to slaughter, to steal and slaughter somebody else's sheep. He goes and takes away, the wealthy man takes away the poor man's sheep to eat the poor man's sheep. What happened? So David and Melch flew into a rage and he said, that's terrible. He stole his sheep. He should not only have to make restitution, he has to pay four times as much because there's something called Gona Vatovach. He, 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 he steal and make him pay extra. He's guilty. And that's when Nassim Navi said, and what do you think your story with Uriah was? And then David Melch realizes his folly and David Melch starts doing tshuva. And actually spends the rest of his life in, m- m- mortified and doing tshuva for what he did because basically Nasanavi puts up a big mirror right in front of him. But the way he artfully and divinely inspiredly paints the picture, David Melch doesn't recognize himself until after Uriah kind of opens his eyes. So first he condemns the person and then Uriah says, funny you should say that. <laughs> Sound kind of familiar? Just a slight little metaphor. So the Gemara says, "Mishum kivas," because she literally sat in his bosom. That's the euphemism, the expression. That's why he was like a daughter. Ella, the Gemara says, "No, no, 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 no." Pasheva was not a daughter to Uriah, but rather kibayis. Kibayis means. Like a house. So we see actually another example, another, another verse in the scripture that speaks of, in a euphemism, it's like an, an altikri. In the metaphor, of course, he doesn't marry a sheep. That's crazy. He doesn't marry his pet. And in the metaphor, the pet is like a child. I can't even tell you how many people in this neighborhood have told me, call their, call their pets their children. Don't even get me started. You want to have a pet? It's a child? Come to mommy, come to daddy. They is mere. Okay, whatever. So, so, but, but in, in, in the pet, in the story of the pet, where Nasanavi is telling the story, he means like, yeah, it was like, like a daughter. I guess people have been calling pets <laughs> their children ever since the days of David Amalek. Anyway, the point is in the Al-Tikri kind of story, that there, what does the bat mean? It definitely doesn't mean a bayat. In the story, in the metaphor, in the parable, it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's a child maybe. It's like a child. He loved this little animal like a child. However, in the message, not the parable, in the actual message being delivered, what is, what is Bathsheba? It's his wife. It's his wife. So we see that the word kibas can be referred, we can use the word bas, and it could mean daughter or child, but it also carries an additional meaning, not just of bas, not just of daughter or child, but it carries the additional meaning of wife. And so, the Gemara has done a stunning job of showing us an example, a case, an actual case, where the scripture says bas, and means bias. And that's how Nasa Navi presented his words. So, now we just simply take the idea from Nasa Navi's narrative, and bring it into, into the Megillah, it makes perfect sense. So why wouldn't the Megillah tell us this openly, though? Why, why would the Megillah hide this from us? So one of the answers that Mepharshim give is that the Megillah 
was originally written, anybody know what language? Persian. Or at least a version of Persian was, 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 was available. And who was it originally read by? Who looked at this Megillah? Everybody. It was a public document. Ahasuerus would certainly have read this document. So now if Ahasuerus finds out that Esther is really Mordechai's wife, this would not go so well for Mordechai. The same king that could kill his wife when he fights into rage could also kill his new prime minister. Actually, he killed the old prime minister. Now he killed the new prime minister. So it wasn't a good idea for the story to get out. So what happened? So mum was the word. The Jewish people kept the story to themselves. It was alluded to in the Hebrew version. How? How? Chido would tell you because it says, Lakach livas, not kivas. Or the Manasalevi would say, it's self-understood. Future generations would understand that if Esther's 75 years old, of course she was married. It's not possible to consider it otherwise. So where would we find it? They'll figure it out. And Reb Meir cracked the code. Because Reb Meir looked at this, looked at this story of Nasana Novi and Basheva and Dovid Melach, and he said, ah, kibas, kibais. This is being conveyed to us in code. It's a biblical code. And he figured out that the biblical code is that Esther was not only adopted as a child, but ultimately became the spouse of Mordechai. All right. We don't know very much about Esther's upbringing other than she was as lonely as they say in Yiddish as a stone, alone in the world, never knew her parents. And it, it is cer certainly sounds odd by uh, Western terms or like that this man raised her as a child and then married her. Sounds very strange. But that's what it is. I can't give you anything else because I don't know anything else. I'm not saying there isn't anything else. I, I don't have any more material to give you. Yeah. Do you have to have Rabbi marry you, or can Mordecai marry her without? Do you have to have a rabbi marry you? That's a good question. So, rabbi at the chuppah is really just a glorified mashgir. He's like your kosher supervisor, making sure that your dinner's kosher. If you don't have, if you don't have a mashgiach, was your dinner still kosher? Well, maybe. Maybe the caterer behaved. Maybe the caterer didn't make any trouble. Would you trust the caterer alone? The caterer shouldn't trust himself. <laughs> there needs to be what we call an independent or objective review. So the independent or objective review would be there to say, yes, I saw and everything was going right. So the rabbi at the chuppah doesn't really marry. He doesn't have any powers vested in him by the Torah. He doesn't have the power to marry people as it is in other faith systems or other cultures or civilizations. What we say, a rabbi who is mesader kedushin, the Hebrew is very revealing. It says he arranges the kedushin. He's, he's an arranger. He's a, he's a supervisor. What you need to have is two kosher witnesses. So there would have had to be a kedushin which, in which two kosher witnesses. It is, the custom is that the blessings are recited and there's a rabbi who presides over the ceremony. So did Mordechai have a presiding rabbi or did he do this in a very private ceremony with two relatives who weren't related to them? You know what? It's anybody's guess. I don't know. It doesn't seem like this was a secret in the Jewish community. It just seems like this was a secret that remained in the Jewish community. People in the Jewish community know it didn't get out there. And then at a certain point, it wasn't going to get out there because it was a dangerous thing to talk about. So they didn't talk about it. But it still had to be alluded to in the Megillah. Wasn't uh, Esther a Moabite? Was Esther a Moabite? Yeah, I thought Esther Ooh, was not. No, 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 no. Esther's a direct descendant from King Saul. Oh, okay. 
Ruth you're talking about. Oh, maybe right, yeah. That's David HaMelech. This is Shaul HaMelech, the first king of the Jewish people from the tribe of Binyamin. So now, now that you know about Esther's youth, childhood, adolescence, or whatever little bit we know about, so now we know that Esther was married, and now we've kind of jumped forward. She's 75 years old. We don't get many details. I know, this is how it is in the scripture. <laughs> the details you get are the ones you need to get. So you actually tell me that Jews could actually secretly keep this together? Ah, maybe this is the extra Purim miracle, that Jews could keep a secret. That, that's possible. Uh, this would be a miracle for sure. Well, you know, the more you study the Megillah, the more you see how many miracles just like jump off the page with you. There's so many things that just happen to happen. It's virtually impossible for a person to read the story of the Megillah correctly from beginning to end and say, yeah, happenstance. Just, just some stuff. You couldn't say that. You read the Megillah in order, in order to realize that there's miracle upon miracle if they connect the dots. So let's talk, about, let's talk about Esther's harrowing days in the palace. How bad was it in the palace? Well, it says about Esther... Moving forward into the second chapter, it says, we, we says, it says that um, Esther found this unbelievable grace. Everybody saw her. She caught everybody's eye. She has amazing charisma. Everybody was amazed by Esther. And, and it says that they did everything she wanted, and they brought her all of her cosmetics, and all, we'll talk about that more in the next class. But it says they brought the Esheva Hanaores Vigoymer, the seven maidens. They brought her seven maidens. What does it mean, seven maidens? And especially it says, Sheva Hanaores Harauyos, that was suitable for her. What does it mean, seven maidens were suitable? What, what, is, what is going on over here? Omar Rava, Rava says, read this carefully, excavate the deeper message. Shahoisa Moine Bohem. It means that Esther used them to tell time. She kept the day of Shabbos. How did she know which day was Shabbos? Because she had, as the Yadis Dvash explains, she had no concept of time in the palace. She was basically a prisoner. He says it was times in the royal palace you didn't see the sunlight, you didn't see day, you didn't see night. You lost concept of time. This is like in prison. You were totally, Esther did not live an independent life anymore. It was all about what the eth, ethnician, what's it called? Eschatician, I don't know, the beauty people? Eschatician. was what the eschatician told her and the dietician told her. You had to pretty you up, right? So you now became like, 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 a, like a, a laboratory specimen. Okay, you, you were just being prettied up for Achashverosh now. And therefore there was no day and there was no night. And you were on their schedule. And you didn't know if you were coming or going. To the point that Esther was worried she needs to know when Shabbos is. Just keep Shabbos. This is a big Tzutkanas. How's she going to keep Shabbos? So the way she figured it out, this out, remember, and Esther doesn't tell anybody she's Jewish. Tell somebody Jewish. You get me a Jewish calendar. Tell me when is Shabbos. Esther Mordechai said, don't tell anybody. So she's not telling. But she's got it for herself know when it's Shabbos. And she was incommunicado for those months. Mordechai was asking about her. He would hang out and find out how she's doing. They couldn't be in touch. So Esther ingeniously figured out how she would hide and camouflage her background, who she really was, and at the same time, nobody would be able to know. 
So we have like this basically three schools of thought on exactly what happened over here. One school of thought is that Esther literally lost track of time. And because she lost track of time, like Rashi says, Shahisa, Mishar Salah, Achas, Be'echad B'Shabbas, one maiden came to be her attendant on Sunday, the first day of the week. Ve'achas b'sheni b'shavas, one on the second day of the week. Ve'achas b'shlishi b'shavas, one on the third day of the week. V'chein kulam. Uchshiyiyah yoyim shifcha shal shabbas. When the shabbas maiden came, attendant arrived, yodas shahayim shabbas. She would know that today is shabbas. So if you look at Rashi very carefully, it says when the maiden arrived, she would know it's shabbas. But if the maiden came on shabbas, shabbas doesn't start, excuse me, in the morning. When does shabbas start? In the evening. So one, one school of thought is that this was a question of Esther being a prisoner. All these girls were prisoners, but I guess they didn't care. They just kind of gave themselves over into this servitude of Ahasuerus' pleasure, and it was what it was, and you had a chance to be the queen, so don't sweat the small stuff, don't, don't let it bother you, and, you know, make the most of it. But Esther had a problem, Shabbos. So she takes these seven, she realized that every girl gets different attendants, and I guess they waited on your hand and foot the whole time for 24 hours. So they give one girl for 24 hours and then that girl got a few days off and the next one came in. Everybody worked one day a week. And that day a week, they were with you at all times. For your every whim, your every care. So Esther called the first one the, uh, a, a name which would remind her of the first day of creation. So the first day of creation, what happens? Yehi or, let to be light. So maybe Esther called her... Sunburst, light, I don't know. She gave her a name that reminded her that the person wouldn't know she was being called Sunday because the person wasn't necessarily biblically inclined. But Esther had a code for herself and she knew when this girl comes that that's day one. And then day two, maybe she called her sky, I don't know. Heavenly, I don't know. Something with the heavens because that's one of the division. Maybe she called it divisiveness. Some, something that was for her a sign. And then the third day, Maybe she called her a fruitcake. I don't know. Something with vegetation. But every day she gave her a name which alluded to the phenomenon of Hashem's creation of the first six days. And then Shabbos had a Shabbos name. We don't know what it was. Whatever. Esther had her own personal... It was a code. Now remember, Esther has to live under such intense scrutiny and nobody should know that who she is. Nobody should ever discover she's Jewish. That's going to be really hard if you don't work on Shabbos. So, which leads us to the next school of thought of what this Gemara means. Another school of thought is that Esther, she could figure out which day was, you know, she knew which day is which day. They, they, did, they, they had days, days of the week. It's called the names. It's actually quite difficult to fathom that she couldn't know days of the week. Just ask somebody what day of the week it is. Like, it's a big deal. So she said, if, the, if the Esther didn't want to be lazy, do nothing. Because the Mishnah says, Batalo mevel dezima, that a person who does nothing with themselves could be, uh, end up in a licentious situation. Esther didn't want to end up licentious. She wants to remain loyal, modest. So she kept herself busy. But if the girl knows that she's going to be busy six days a week and she doesn't work on the seventh, everybody talks. She says, oh, you know, my girl, she doesn't work on the seventh day. So then everybody will find out she's Jewish and Esther's cover is going to be blown. And Mardachai said, under no circumstances, they can't find out. So what did Esther do? Esther arranged the, her own schedule. She said, the girl, the new girl has to arrive at sundown. So one lady left at sundown, then the changing of the guard was sundown. Some of these girls worked, some of them didn't. Some of them didn't lift a finger, do this for me, do that for me. So the girl who came on Shabbos, she only knew Esther who doesn't do anything. 
the girl who came, the, what, the woman who came Sunday through Friday, knew Esther as industrious. She did everything by herself. But not, they didn't know, each one didn't know the other necessarily, and they didn't know that Esther's behavior changed. The Shabbos girl thought, Esther's one of those girls, doesn't do anything. The Friday girl said, she's a very busy girl. The Wednesday girl said, she's less busy. Because she was preparing for Shabbos one day. And this is how Esther managed to get through the time in the palace. Literally being a prisoner in a palace, I'm sure there was tremendous opulence and great luxury, but you know what? As the great American revolutionary Patrick Henry said, give me liberty, give me death. Like, she didn't have any freedom. She was abducted against her own will, was not allowed to be herself, was not allowed to share with anybody. She had not a friend in the world. Who did she talk to? Who did she confide in? During this entire period in the palace, when she was being groomed for her night of horrors at Achashverosh, she didn't have a single person to discuss anything with. And she had to keep everything a secret, maintaining the highest level of dedication and devotion to Judaism, but nobody should know she's Jewish. And, 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 and you don't even necessarily know what day it is. You understand? This was Esther's harrowing. This is what, not that you're going to call, there was no physical torture here. This was emotional abuse. This was, this was mental abuse. This was abuse, what we call, on the level of nefesh. And the psyche, the, the, the psycho schematic could have, could have driven her crazy. How did she communicate with Mordecai with the plan? Only later on. When she's, a free, when she's a free woman again, she becomes the queen, she's become free again. But during this time, she wasn't free. She's a prisoner. There's a crazy story that happened somewhere in the 19th century of a French young woman who fell in love with somebody that her father, that her mother and her brother did not approve of, so they decided to lock her in her room. And she stayed locked in her room for 18 years. And there's a picture of her, actually. You can Google this. She became insane. She became insane from being locked in a dark, ro- a dark room with no windows, throwing scraps of food. When they took her out of there, she was insane. They put her in an asylum afterwards. And she lived out whatever. She couldn't talk. She forgot how to talk. Forgot how to function. So I'm not saying Esther wasn't locked into a room, a dark room. She, she was functioning. She interacted with people, but, but mentally and emotionally, she was like in solitary confinement because she had nobody to talk to. She had no freedom of her own movement. She even had to, she had to hide everything. She couldn't confide. A person has a friend they discuss things with. She didn't have anybody to talk to. She was alone in the world. And this is how Esther goes through those initial days in the palace. And so today we followed Esther. She was raised... <laughs> She got married. She ends up a prisoner in palace. Incidentally, let's begin, let's conclude where we began. We talked about Esther turning green, right? The only one says she turned green. Could you blame her? Think about think about everything she went through. She, she turned green. She couldn't turn green from this kind of torture. And yet, the miracle is, Achashverosh loved her. Everybody loved her. Nobody can get over her. Wow, Esther, how amazing she is. A star amongst us. So in the next class, Bezat Hashem, We'll talk about Esther's diet and we'll talk about some of the beauty techniques that she has to undergo during those early days in the palace. As they say, to be continued.